Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? It really couldn't be better. How are you today? Oh, the same. Same. Couldn't be better. Good. And especially because we have such a wonderful guest on, and this this audio was taken from our live Get Vocal night, um, which was about, a, we recorded it about a month ago, and we have the very special guest, Heather Bish. I know. What a great guest. Uh, what a great human being. Uh, the Get Vocal night was amazing. The uh, The room was packed, and we just want to thank everybody who joins our Thursday night Get Vocals. Um, we try to get all, as many uh, as many guests there that uh, that can provide some stimulating conversation, especially someone like Heather, who lost her sister, Molly Bish. Uh, Molly Bish disappeared on June 27th of the year 2000 and her body was recovered on June 9th of 2003 and this was in a uh, small town of Warren, Massachusetts and Heather has become an advocate for so many things. She's the director of Project Forward at Cape Cod Community College and she's a doctor as well. She is extremely impressive. She fights legislatively for her sister's uh, justice. She she pushes for a familial DNA bill and it's really impressive the work that she's done on that. And also with the Molly Bish Center at Anna Marie College is pretty amazing. I mean, they, they just never stop advocating for Molly Bish. Okay, and we're going to break this up into two parts. So this is part one. Part two will be out tomorrow. And Bill Thomas, our good friend Bill Thomas from Mind Over Murder, jumps on for the second part of this. And the thing about Bill Thomas jumping on is very indicative of these Get Vocal Nights. They're very interactive. There are four screens so you can hop on and you can contribute. And once you're done, you can ask some questions. Once you're done, someone else can come on. So it's like this rotating thing. It's super fun. And, uh, you know, everybody's welcome to uh, to hop on and, and interact with us. And Bill, of course, uh, is an advocate himself for his sister's case. His sister, Kathy Thomas, was murdered as part of the Colonial Parkway murders. And uh, make sure to check out his podcast, Mind Over Murder, which is amazing. And it's on the Crawl Space Network. Him and his partner, Kristen Dilly, do a great job together, great chemistry. And it's uh, very fun to hear uh, their dynamic. So, yeah, check that show out. It's amazing. That's true. And Kristen's also a teacher, just like Heather Bish. And so I hope you enjoy this episode with Heather Bish. And thank you very much. Heather Bish, um, we we spoke with you a, a few months ago on our show, and uh, of course your sister Molly Bish um, was murdered, and she went missing ultimately about twenty years ago, almost uh, really almost exactly twenty years ago now. So again, just want to welcome you to the show, and um, I guess I, I know you, you, there was a vigil recently um, at Commons Pond, and I'm just wondering um, how that was. It was actually quite beautiful. We um, were trying to keep it COVID responsible by keeping it small. And, you know, my parents are older now, so I'm really protective of their health. So we decided to do sort of a moving vigil and, and take cars and drive from my parents' house to Cummins Pond. But we also asked people to um, paint a rock in, in memory of Molly. Molly was very kind. She loved everybody. Um, she really believed in underdogs. She was one of those motivating persons that, you know, on the on the baseball team or just in life. She was just, uh, you know, one of those people that really inspired inspired you. And 
made you happy to be around her. She was funny and silly and goofy. And so we thought, well, wouldn't it be great to do these kindness rocks in memory of Molly, of her kindness, and maybe even about safety and keep talking about safety. And it's really important, I think, that we continue those conversations as parents and caregivers and aunts and uncles. We just need to make sure that our, unfortunately now, uh, that our children are cognizant of the dangers that are out there. And you were on our show a little while ago, and it was easily the most uh, emotional show in retrospect that Tim and I have ever done. Uh, while it was happening, we were we were taking it as it was coming, but it I, it's the only um, interview that I think, maybe I'm speaking for Tim as well, but it's the only interview that I've walked away from and still like it still resonated like i'll still to this day like lay in bed and think about that interview uh because of some of the very simple things that you said that we never hear from from secondary victims like this which is when when you had said the the first night that molly was missing you simply didn't know how to go to sleep and we never hear that and it's like the simplest thing how do you go home without your sister or your daughter or your or your best friend, even think about Molly's friends who are 16 years old and they had to go home with their moms and dads. My brother, yeah. I mean, he will kill me if I hear this, but he he was only 19 and his best friend literally slept in bed with him that night um, <laughs> at my parents' house. Like, he, you are shocked and scared and um, there's, and terrified. I mean, there's nothing... I think there's there's nothing anyone can do but be with you. And so, I mean, I'm so grateful for my people that have been with me this whole time, um, literally. <laughs> um, and, and my brother too, I think that's how we've, we've sort of survived this. And we were lucky in 2006, uh, my parents had always been involved with the National Center and there was um, a, a group that was like parents that got together and, and sort of helped each other. And I kept asking from like 2000 to 2006, what about the kids? Like, where are they? Because I only know about that kid that had that movie. I know my name is Steven or something. And he didn't end up so well. So I was really out. Like, I'm like, and I hadn't met like anybody else's siblings in Massachusetts. So uh, as John and I were very fortunate, we ended up uh, meeting families from across the country that experienced the same kind of thing, you know, maybe different ages, but sibling had been abducted and that was like probably the most healing experience of my life because you know you meet people who who have siblings that die from cancer or um, other tragedies car accidents and and that empathy and loss is not any different but the experience of the trauma that we went through um you know like your parents giving you christmas presents for years from your sibling like when you say mom and dad that's like not cool to do anymore you know so there was things that they knew about that nobody could really know just because your your sibling's missing you know they're they're not it 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 was it's so ambiguous it's so um it's difficult for everybody you know so I think everybody grieves differently or handles it differently but I think just you know being there we were just lucky to have people there with us and and that was demonstrated in Molly's vigil this this past year with people you know coming in their cars and you know we've had Senate our Senator um, Ann Gobi and our representative Todd Smola have been 
literally with us from the very beginning of, of this whole thing. I, I mean, I think of them almost as family, not as these like people in this important position of leadership, but they have really truly supported us. Um, and that's what I think a leader should do is really get that get down into those issues. And I think it has helped them learn about what's needed in government. I mean, we've, we've dealt with Amber Alert and police trainings and uh, all kinds of uh, trying to change the license plates in Massachusetts. Um, so they, they have been supportive through this all the entire time. So I think, you know, support has been the most important and helpful thing. And that was probably a long answer, right? No, no, that was a, that was a great answer. Um, yeah. I am Maggie Bish's daughter. I don't know if anyone's ever talked to her ever before, but she is. <laughs> so um, you just mentioned Ann Gobi, who's a Massachusetts senator uh, from Worcester. And we we were we've been planning to do this live show. We wanted to have her on with you. This live show that's going to probably happen sometime next year uh, at the Brick Box Theater in Worcester. It's a brand new theater. We 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 were supposed to do it uh, over the summer, and then it got pushed. Then it got pushed. But uh, we wanted to have Ann Kobe on, and we ended up having a call with her and. How many people have we interviewed, Tim, on the show? Like, like I don't know how many people I've interviewed just from doing these shows. I was terrified, by the way. The second Ann Gobi said a word, I was like, I was simultaneously terrified and I felt like I was about a foot and a half tall. It was, it was because she's just sharp. She's just like, yeah. you can. She's a senator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, she's great. It wasn't her vibe um, that that was uh, intimidating. It was it was like that. Oh, what it, we're really having a call with a senator call right a now. Senator? What, is, what is going on? <laughs> and she's <laughs> and she's just like she's just asking the questions, and and it just you know when you realize that that's not the arena that you you're meant to be in. It's just like I, I need to I need to get out of here. <laughs> I'm doing more harm than good right now. <laughs> Usually when I go to the state house, I take, I immediately go to the shower too. It's a rough business, Jason. Oh, really? You have to be strong. Oh my God, I bet. And extra strong if you're a woman. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, I guess uh, tell us a little bit about um, this bill, if you you don't mind. You know, I've, I've been trying to figure out ways to find a murderer, you know, in 20 years and DNA has really, um, become a a really incredible tool for law enforcement to solve these cases particularly these, these older cases so it really um sparked an interest with me and i talked to my detectives and they said we really we could use uh you know a law like that in massachusetts and i wasn't i don't i'm a teacher i don't really particularly know anything about law enforcement or laws or writing laws or forensics or anything um but i do want to find the bad guys and I have these, um, you know, incredible privilege to to share my story, and in so doing, hopefully inspire people to want to do those right things. And um, you know, that's that's what I'm doing. So I I, I came across this, and I, I um, started writing a bill. And I I don't really know how to write a bill, but I did it. I don't again know anything about forensics, but I I took some ideas from other states and. I gave it to my incredibly awesome senator, Ann Gobi, and I said, I think we need to do this. And meanwhile, I had met with um, the district attorneys from Massachusetts and uh, the chiefs of police and talked to them about it. And, you know, they felt strongly, you know, Massachusetts is, it's not California or um, 
you know, Kentucky. It's just different. You know, we like, we're very litigious here. So, you know, they just felt better if we had this law. And so basically familial DNA, by the way, means we have this CODIS system. It's a national database where you, all these felons go into. And so if you have a match, bam, you get to be a bad guy. But if you have a partial match, you know, you kind of like throw that away. But familial DNA uses that partial match and says, okay, well, then somebody in this family committed this. So then you start just doing like really good police work and you start looking at like cousin Eddie or uncle Johnny and see who was in the area of the victim who had a relationship or were any ties to, to the victim and, and you get their DNA. And then it's pretty much yes or no, it, you know, it's science, uh, which is the beauty of, of this tool for law enforcement, because it's actually as much as we, you know, I think there's been conversations about it violating rights, which I'm not even sure about what people are talking about because I feel like we don't, I mean, everybody knows everything right now anyway. So, but it actually exonerates people who've been, you know, wrongly incarcerated. So it's just a really solid tool. And I, I just think it's sort of a no brainer. So um, Senator Goby filed the bill uh, and we actually had it looked, we, had, we are fortunate in Massachusetts to have this forensic oversight committee. Um, and so they looked at the bill and actually like edited it like, for what they really need, which is what I want. I mean, ultimately, I just want this to happen, like in the best way possible for the organization. You know, I, if I if a if a scientist was writing a teacher bill, I would hope that they would want my input on it as a teacher, and then, you know, move forward with the bill. Uh, so that's what they did. They edited the bill. So I'm sure with the timing and COVID, we're going to have to refile it again next year. But maybe with um, some of the energy of what's happening right now with these police bills. I mean, I think right now that police bill in Massachusetts has over 200 amendments in the House. I don't know that they're ever going to get out of debate to get this off the ground, which is unfortunate because there's so much work to do with the police. So I feel like maybe there's like a couple, you know, maybe branches or a bigger bill that needs to um, take place because I'm concerned about, I mean, this is just my little piece of it, but I'm concerned about um, law enforcement being trained in missing children's investigations. Still in Massachusetts, our local police are not trained in this. And that was our greatest issue with Molly's case. Law enforcement did not react. Um, Molly was working for the town. She was an honor roll student working two jobs, played three sports. Like, I don't know why someone would think that this kid's like doing drugs in the woods or taking off with her friends or in Florida. Uh, I could see drowning, but if they actually knew the victim, they would know that she didn't actually like to swim in ponds or, um, you know, her Molly's shoes were left at the crime scene. So she was not one of those people that walked around with like icky feet or grassy, which she didn't want to feel the earth or do any of that grounding stuff whenever she was on, not touch anything icky. If they knew the victim more, I think they would have understood the seriousness. Uh, but no one called my parents for three hours. So, you know, and that guy, he's a police chief now. So I hope he learned his lesson and I hope he reacts differently now. I hope he's a different officer and I hope that we all grow and learn from our, our experiences. But I also think that there needs to be a little more consideration about these kinds of things because negligence can happen and, and there's dire consequences. Maybe Molly wouldn't be dead if someone had called right away. You know, we had looked for her right away. I mean, 76% of kids are, who are abducted by a stranger are dead in the first three hours. We weren't even called in the first three hours. What was that? That that statistic is from um, the the year two thousand, like leading like uh, the national uh, cross Center. section up to yeah. that period. 
statistic today. That's a statistic today? Mm-hmm. I well, killed this... in the first three hours of an abduction by a stranger. So time is of the essence. So you really right. need to react. So when my dad, before he had the stroke, went around talking and, ta- and training law enforcement, he said, overreact. Yeah, if the kid ran away or if the kid's like, I don't know, blowing off steam somewhere, who cares? Like, at least they're alive because the other consequence is not. So like, what? how you wanna like, gamble that. I, I don't know. I would overreact. It's a kid. Yeah. The thing is, like, you're talking about something that happened uh, in the middle of the year in 2020 years ago, and and you're still giving a statistic that uh, that I would have thought <laughs> would you, that would have been from the 80s. Would have been from a time when uh, you know, we could actually use that excuse that, you know, small town police departments are underfunded and, hey, guys, they only have four police officers. What do you expect them to do? Well, maybe in the last few decades, something could change and there could be funding for maybe another organization that's not called the police department or something, you know, because we can't seem to get a grip on that. Yeah. I right, mean, I'm we just come up with ex- they, they do just come up with excuses. And, you know, I'm an educator. I come from a field where if we have a, a difficult child, we have the reading specialist, the fourth grade teacher, the, you know, the gym teacher, the, you know, special ed teacher, whatever. Like, we all come together and try to figure out how to help this kid. Like, law enforcement doesn't do that. And it makes me crazy. And, I, and so I think there are so many changes that need to go into, um, you know, this new bill for the police. Uh, and it might, you know, take a little bit longer than what's happening next week. <laughs> and and it shouldn't have anything to do with, um, you know, maybe this young woman, the 16-year-old child was smoking weed in the woods or, oh, she probably ran away or something like that. Maybe that shouldn't even be a consideration, but it really is frustrating that that is usually the consideration. I, I mean, we do so many of these stories where we hear from law enforcement and they say, you know, just family members over here, two officers say, I should probably ran away. Oh, he probably ran away. Oh, he'll be back. I probably ran away with a boyfriend. Like, just just do your job for like two days. Just really, really focus for two days. And you'll find that the, the person probably didn't just run away. Right. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I don't know. I have this compulsion. It's probably not healthy. Um, but I, I go back and I try to look at what did I miss? What did I miss? You know, because I have um, investigators that are new all the time, you know, so I'm the only consistency in this case, the only one that remembers everything and every, you know, major character, you know, I don't have all the police's information, but, you know, some of these guys don't, they don't even know what I'm talking about half the time. So I went back and I found that um, John Conti, who is our district attorney, had talked about paint on a rock like a week after Molly disappeared. And I'm like, where's the paint? Where's the rock? I mean, we can now match. Like we have tests now that could match. Like there's different paint in Buicks and Subarus and, you know, Chevys. Um, Again, I'm like, I'm so like, I'm, I'm just science. Like, I just feel like 
science has these tools that can really, we just like use some more, I don't know, different logic. Yeah. And uh, Michelle in the chat room is a uh, prosecutor from the state of New York, and she's a little uh, blown away that this uh, this bill DNA familiar search uh, tool isn't uh, of use yet in Massachusetts. She said it's uh, such an important tool and it's not a new DNA test. It's an adjustment of the state DNA indexing database. And that still protects the rights of the offenders in the database while helping law enforcement pursue new leads. And I do believe that some DAs are using this covertly. And I do believe that, you know, if push came to shove, it would be okay. And I have talked to um, all kinds of, like, I have this kind of new friend, Rock Harmon out in California, who um, is one of these big guys uh, who sort of leads the charge and does all the training in this familial and um, using genetic DNA in these cases. And he's, he's just, he's so smart and so amazing. And I'm just lucky that, you know, I just have these things that bring us together. But so he, I pick his brain a lot and he's like, ah, you definitely don't need a law. And so I've, I've, I've reached out. I've literally met with the Colonel of the state police. I've met with the forensic lab people. I've met with everyone. And it seems in Massachusetts that they feel that a law is the best bet. And I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. again, I'm just, and J- Jason said uh, sometimes it's because they have personal issues going on at the time, so the police assume they run away to get away from those issues. I agree. I agree. But I don't think that it's the police—I don't think it's the place of the police to assume something and say, well, that that's going to influence my investigation in the immediate uh, aftermath of it. You know, in, in, the, in the week or two weeks after something happens— Police shouldn't be operating on assumptions. No, especially when someone's working for your town. She's 16. I mean, come yeah. on. I mean, if she was 34, like, I don't even know if that would even be better because <laughs> right. um, she's still working for your town. Like, what happens if the town manager goes missing? What do we do? Right. These are great points. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, what if the chief of police goes missing? What the hell? Yeah, it's a great What's point. the difference? I mean, it's bias. She's 16. It's simply just bias. And that is the major problem. I mean, I think that, you know, we can come up with all these sort of things for the police, but we really need to go really much deeper. And we need to think about training, education, and, you know, trauma. Let's talk about how traumatized police officers are. You know, why did that guy think about, you know, I always try to turn perspectives a little bit. And so I think, why did that guy say that? Maybe he had dealt with a lot of runaways. Maybe he chased down a lot of kids a lot. I don't know. Um, But I do see that, I think, as an educator and and someone who's worked with children and people for 20 years, that trauma definitely impacts us more than, you know, we think. And all of us, every every single one of us. And, um, you know, I think we really need to sort of, talk about that elephant in the room and with police because you can't tell me when you're going to pick up four bodies of four babies who were burnt by some crazy person that doesn't fuck you up for a while I, totally it's impossible it's impossible totally we we have a, a good friend of ours cloyd steiger who is a uh, homicide detective in seattle and he's written a bunch of uh really 
um, amazing uh, accounts, uh, true stories. He's written a couple of books about, you know, just his experience in uh, being in homicide for like 30 plus years, 40 years. And we had him on one of these programs, one of the Get Vocals, and and he... And he just sort of seemed a little perplexed that there was even trauma within uh, police officers, like within the department. He said, you know, we'd go out and we'd do stuff and then we'd just go to a bar and like blow off some steam and everything's fine. And he really is a he really is this like guy. We call him Uncle Cloyd because he is he'll he'll be talking about. Or you know, a functioning alcoholic, which is mu- much more what I see with these police officers. And I'm not right. trying to bash them. I'm not. I really I love I love um, police officers. I'm grateful for them. But I do see that as a major coping mechanism. (laughs) And it's not. It's not cool, man. Right. Because they have a position of power, and then they're driving home drunk from the bars, feeling pretty powerful. And hopefully they don't hurt your kid. Hopefully they don't hit, you know, hopefully they don't hit anything or anybody. But, you know, they're just as vulnerable as everybody. They're not superhuman. And that's the thing. If you're going to find bodies and you're counting bodies and you're going to crime scenes every day, that takes a toll on anybody. And a police officer is still just a person. Right. Right. And when he said that, I, I think I think Tim and I both had the same reaction. We we're like, really? Really? I, I mean, I, I know I'm just like a podcaster, but really, you can get o- like you can just walk away from that. I think he's a different kind of guy. Like he, he would say stuff like, well, if you, if you have to like, you know, talk to a therapist after that, then you're probably in the wrong line of business. <laughs> so he, he might be from a, a little bit of a, the, the old West uh, in that sense. Um, you know, he's, he's a cowboy who can't kind of like, can't, uh, you know, or at least d- doesn't admit that he needs to discuss his feelings in that way. You know, been reading a lot about cognitive dis- dissonance lately. Have you guys heard about? Yes, that? Yeah. <laughs> this, pop- this keeps popping up recently. Lance loves it. <laughs> I love it. I, <laughs> I'm going to do it a few times during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing. But, I'm going to yeah, Google I, what it I, is. <laughs> but I think you are right about. Um, some police officers and, and, and some, maybe even some federal agents and things like that at at times. I think they're, you know, they, they don't do drugs. Um, like, like some, some people use as vices. Um, but I think there is a drinking culture there. Um, and I think that is one way that they cope for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Very disconcerting. Um, before it gets lost, uh, criminal perspective had a comment. I'm scrolling. It was about Rodney Stanger. Rodney Stanger. Yeah, I just wanted to get the right wording here. I can't find it. Uh, Criminal Perspective wanted to know what was uh, what the status was with Rodney Stanger. Yeah, he said. Well, actually, I had a recent update that, um, as you know, I um, um, worked with Bob Ward to get down to Rodney Stanger's trailer. And in 2013, they were supposed to be doing testing on the items in that trailer. And at one point, they told me, we're not going to talk to you about DNA, Heather. So I was like, what What the heck? What do you mean? I've been calling you every day for like six weeks. And my friend Kathy Kern has been calling you every day too. She's a Channel 5 reporter, like trying to trying to get the answers here. Like, we think this is the guy. We're waiting. And um, nothing. So I think there was some sort of communication problem with the lab that, that occurred that, you know, wasn't, you know, didn't come up for a few more years. But this is sort of the, the um, ebb and flow of working with law enforcement. You get like, pieces of information it's not like you know it's funny people will say oh i turned in information they never got back to me heather and i'm like guys 
they don't even tell me stuff. Like they don't get, I talk to them maybe once a year. And then mostly if I get leads from like Facebook or something, I send it to them. And if I ask, maybe they'll give me an answer. Maybe they won't. Mostly they won't. So um, they didn't tell me anything about the, that test. And I just assumed nothing was inconclusive or nothing came of it. And I recently learned that a hair from um, one of the knives in Rodney Stanger's trailers did not match to Molly. It was one allele off. So it was not Molly's hair that was um, on that knife. Does that completely rule him out? No, but I mean, it's kind of put them sort of on the back burner a little bit. Wow. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know, can you give a quick background of uh, oh, yeah. Mr. Stanger? Rodney, Rodney yeah. um, came into my um, light from a private investigator named Tom Shamshack that was really good friends with my dad. He had been a former chief of police in Spencer and helped start the BU um, private investigative program. And um, he came up with this guy and um, he, this guy had, you know, been really abusive. He was from the Southbridge area, lived very close to where Molly um, took her uh, life guarding lessons. So that we think maybe that could have been the way she maybe met him, maybe at Dunkin' Donuts or, you know, she might've run up the street or something. Um, but he ended up just really abusive, really alcoholic, really bad guy, ended up marrying this girl and moving to Florida and killing her. Um, he, she called her sister right before she was killed and said that Rodney was involved in some murders and indicated it was Molly and Holly Ukrainian. Um, so the sister, you know, turned that into the police and the police didn't really do anything with it. So she somehow got connected with Bob Ward from Fox, who ended up following through and looking into this and saying, you know, like, hey, this is, this is a really interesting person. So, um, you know, they followed that through and it, you know, they ended up, that was like 2009. Um, and then, um, you know, he, but he was in jail. So they, you know, they ended up going down and talking to him, uh, but not really getting anything out of him. And then Bob found out that his trailer was still like wide open. Like no one had been there since he was taken. So he went down there and when he, after he went down there, then the police decided to go down there. Um, and then they found several items. Um, they found some like elastic bands. They thought maybe he could have taken his prizes from little girls. Um, you know, obviously some knives and weaponry. And then he had a fishing license that was from April of 2000. So right before Molly disappeared and he looked just like the sketch. So that was really the um, jarring moment. Um, but Again, nothing ever directly linked him to Molly. A lot of circumstances. You just mentioned uh, Holly Peranian. She was, um, was she 10 years old? And that was 93, I think. She was actually the same age as Molly, but she was abducted in 93 when they were both 10. So very interesting when when she was abducted, um, you know, Molly is the same age and we went to church and our um, priest had said, you know, pray for the family. And Molly, being this really, like I said, really empathetic um, young woman or girl, um, wrote this letter to her family and included one of our family pictures from like 1988. I don't know, terrible. Um, and sent it to them. And they actually kept it. And so when Molly disappeared, I don't know how they remembered this, but they remembered that little girl who wrote the letter and they brought it to our house. And their, um, their grandmother and the aunt were very um, proactive in, in um, police investigation. And so they really helped develop the Molly Dish Foundation with my parents and really went out. Um, Karen, 
Ali's aunt went out every weekend with my dad, who is really um, a fantastic start to our center and helping, you know, talk about these cases. And, um, you know, I think people link Holly and Molly all the time, and it's easy to think, you know, there's one bad guy that, you know, killed a 10-year-old and then, you know, later killed a 16-year-old. I don't, I don't think that that's probably true. Um, I get they definitely have a special connection um, and that's special for our families. I think that was our, our gift from them to us. Uh, but I don't think that it was the same murderer. I think that there are actually a lot of bad guys out there um, and they look like us. They look like yeah. your teachers, your coaches, your priests. Wouldn't it be nice if it was just a single predator and you can say, wow, that wraps that up. We we get we got it, but chances are, chances are, it's that's not the case. Um, can you uh, speak a little bit about the relationship between the two families, between your family and the Peranians? Because I think um, I'm just looking at the chats here, and I think a lot of people really are uplifted by this part of the story, how the two families came together to do something really great. Yep, and that's that's really what happened. They came um, and brought that picture over and that letter over, and it was the beginning. You know, it was the first few weeks of when Molly was gone. Um, so my parents, you know, we were literally at my parents' house. We didn't know what we were doing from one minute to the next, you know. Um, so they they helped us. They they were like, this happened to us too. And like I said, for just like my brother and I meeting someone that had gone through something like that, that was really so, so important for my parents. That helped them. And that helped them too. I think it helped them. I think it helped them gain their power back. You know, they lose, you lose your kid. I mean, how disempowering and helpless can you feel if someone, how can someone take your kid? Like, how is that possible to lose your kid in America? And I think that that really tied them and, and united them in a mission to make sure no one, nobody else ever had to experience this. And this guy knew that we were out there rattling the cage and telling everyone to be freaking careful um, because there's a bad there's some bad guys out there. Yeah. And I, I can see how you can kind of uh, come together in that same or similar circumstances um, be, being a tragedy like that. Um, one, one thing, you, you mentioned a photo of your family that, uh, that Molly sent to Holly's family. One one thing that I noticed from looking at the articles from the vigil that you guys held uh, just recently is that it seemed like you guys were honoring her memory in a not so much a sad way. Well, for us, it's different. I think for some people, they think about Molly once a year when that time of the year comes around and you just sort of feel that kind of thing. But for us, for me, um, it's every day. Every day I am thinking about my sister, you know, and I'm driving somewhere where I think, you know, like I have a doctor's appointment. And I think she should be there with me at it. Um, you know, I just, I, I miss her all the time. Like I don't need um, to publicly cry for Molly once a year. I, I cry all the time and miss my sister. And every day of my life, I, um, you know, I work for this. I work for things to be better for others because I don't, I can't live in a world that I can imagine this happening to somebody else. And, um, you know, so being happy is a reflection. You know, we try to focus Molly's vigils on, on the good, you know, on what's good. I don't want this guy for one fucking second 
to feel empowered by taking and making me hurt or broken or my family broken or sad. I don't want them to feel empowered in any sort of way. And so we celebrate her life. We celebrate um, what she meant to us, like with the kindness rocks. We celebrate the people that were there for us. You know, I mean, like, like I talk about Rock Harmon. I mean, this person that came out of the woodwork for me. I mean, that's happened to me in over 20 years. People just come out and help. And so that's why my favorite saying is that Mr. Rogers saying, look for the helpers, because it's really true. I, I mean, that's what's happened and that's what's made um, you know, us survive. It's made our foundation flourish and my parents' work flourish. And it's made um, the energy to carry on this work to, the, to this day. Thank you.